to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the New York Times, Rachel Maddow, Ring of Fire, Mother Jones Radio, and the Young Turks. If theater's in your blood, you just can't resist the urge to put on a show. After the good news arrived about Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, administration officials at first downplayed any prospect of a new mission accomplished to hype the victory. But that restraint didn't last a week. In sync with Barbara Streisand, who this month announced a new concert tour to cap her 1994 farewell tour, the White House gave in to its nature and revved up its own encore. Given our government's preference for spectacle over substance, Baghdad's surprise, too, was more meticulously planned than security for post-liberation Baghdad. The script was a montage of the administration's greatest hits. As the prototype of Thanksgiving 2003, there was a breathless blow-by-blow of how President Bush faked out his own cabinet, donned a baseball cap, and slipped into his waiting plane. In cautious remembrance of Top Gun, White House photos were disseminated of the fearless leader hovering in the cockpit, Once on the ground, Mr. Bush made much of looking into the eyes of Nuri al-Maliki, our third post-Saddam Iraqi leader, and finding him as worthy as he did Vladimir Putin after a similarly theatrical ocular x-ray. This bit of presidential shtick is now as polished as Johnny Carson's old burlesque psychic Karnak the Magnificent. But not every sequel is as satisfying as Spider-Man 2. This time, the plot holes in the triumphal narrative were too obvious— Since Thanksgiving 2003, the number of American troops in Iraq has gone up and casualties have increased more than five-fold. With Italy and South Korea leading the bailout, the coalition of the willing is wilting. Rest assured that Moldova and El Salvador are hanging in. Iraq's security is such that Mr. Bush could stay only six hours, all in the green zone bunker. The presidential diagnosis of Mr. Maliki's trustworthiness was contradicted by the White House decision to keep the visit a secret from him until the last minute. How big a diss is that? Even the Americans the administration distrust most, journalists were told a day in advance. Polls last week showed scant movement in either the president's approval rating, 37% in the NBC News Wall Street Journal survey released on Wednesday night, or that of the war, 53% deem it a mistake. On NBC, Tim Russert listed Mr. Bush's woes, Iraq, Iraq, Iraq. Americans pick Iraq as the most pressing national issue, 21 points ahead of immigration, the runner-up. They find the war so dispiriting that the networks spend less and less time covering it. Had the much-hyped Alberto roused itself from tropical storm to hurricane, Mr. Bush's Baghdad jaunt would have been bumped for the surefire Nielsen boost of tempest-tossed male anchors emoting in the great outdoors. All of which makes it stupendously counterintuitive that the Republican campaign strategy for 2006 is to run on the war. But there was Karl Rove, freshly released from legal jeopardy, proposing exactly that in a speech just before the president's trip. In a drive-by swift boating, he portrayed John Kerry and John Murtha, two decorated Vietnam veterans calling for an expedited exit from Iraq, as cowards who exemplify their party's old patterns of cutting and running. 
Mr. Rove's speech was almost an exact replay of the first speech to politicize the war on terrorism, also by him, and delivered just four months after 9-11. In January 2002, he said Republicans could go to the country on this issue because voters trust the Republican Party to do a better job of protecting and strengthening America's military might, and thereby protecting America. Democrats howled. But with Mr. Bush's approval rating still sky-high, the strategy was a slam dunk. The Democratic Senate Majority Leader, then Tom Daschle, was yoked to Saddam Hussein in a campaign attack ad. Intimidated colleagues stampeded to sign on to a hasty Iraq War resolution, exquisitely timed by the White House to come to a vote before the midterms. The Democrats lost anyway, as they would again in 2004, when Mr. Rove elevated swift boating to an extreme sport. But in 2006? The war is going so badly that it's hard to imagine how the Democrats, fractious as they are, could fail, particularly if the Republicans insist on highlighting the debacle, as they did last week by staging a congressional mud fight about Iraq on the same day that the American death toll reached 2,500. As the Republican pollster Tony Fabrizio wittily observed in April, The good news is Democrats don't have much of a plan. The bad news is they may not need one. Actually, though, the Democrats did have some plans, all of them now capsizing. The biggest was the hope that they could be propelled into power by their opponents' implosions. But Mr. Rove was not indicted, and the culture of corruption has lost its zing. Tom DeLay is gone, Duke Cunningham's in jail, and many Americans can't differentiate between Jack Abramoff the Indian casino maven, and William Jefferson, the Louisiana Democrat who kept $90,000 of very cool cash in his freezer. On the war, Democrats are fighting among themselves, or worse, running away from it altogether. Last week, the party's most prominent politician, Hillary Clinton, rejected both the president's strategy of continuing with his open-ended commitment in Iraq and some Democrats' strategy of setting a date certain for withdrawal. She was booed by some in her liberal audience who chanted, Bring the troops home now. But her real sin was not that she failed to endorse that option, but that she failed to endorse any option. While the Democrats dither about Iraq, you can bet that the White House will ambush them with its own election-year facsimile of an exit strategy, dangling nominal troop withdrawals as bait for voters. To sweeten the pot, it could push Donald Rumsfeld to join Mr. DeLay in retirement, Since Republicans also vilified the defense secretary's incompetence, his only remaining value to the White House is as a political pawn that Mr. Rove can pluck from the board at the most advantageous moment. October, perhaps? What's most impressive about Mr. Rove, however, is not his ruthlessness. It's his unshakable faith in the power of a story. The story he stuck with, Iraq, is a loser, but he knows it won't lose at the polls if there's no story to counter it. And so he tells it over and over, confident that the Democrats won't tell their own, and they don't, whether about Iraq or much else. The question for the Democrats is less whether they tilt left, right, or center, than whether they can find a stirring narrative that defines their views, not just the Republicans. What's needed, wrote Michael Tomosky in an influential American prospect essay last fall, is a big-picture case based on core principles— As he argued, Washington's continued and inhumane failure to ameliorate the devastation of Katrina, 
could not be a more pregnant opportunity for the Democrats to set forth a comprehensive alternative to the party in power. Another opportunity, of course, is the oil dependence that holds America hostage to the worst governments in the Middle East. Instead, the Democrats float Band-Aid nostrums and bumper-sticker marketing strategies like Together, America Can Do Better. As the linguist Jeffrey Nunberg pointed out, the very ungrammaticality of the Democrats' slogan reminds you that this is a party with a chronic problem of telling a coherent story about itself, right down to an inability to get its adverbs and subjects to agree. On Wednesday, Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid were to announce their party's new direction agenda. Actually, an inoffensive checklist of old directions, raise the minimum wage, cut student loan costs, etc. That didn't even mention Iraq. Symbolically enough, they had to abruptly reschedule the public unveiling to attend Mr. Bush's briefing on his triumphant trip to Baghdad. Those who are most enraged about the administration's reckless misadventures are incredulous that it repeatedly gets away with the same stunts. Last week, the president was still invoking 9-11 to justify the war in Iraq, which he again conflated with the war on Islamic jihadism, that we're now losing, by the way, in Afghanistan and Somalia. But as long as the Democrats keep repeating their own mistakes, they will lose to the party whose mistakes are, if nothing else, packaged as one heck of a show. It's better to have the courage of bad convictions than no courage or convictions at all. Shrub went on the airways this week to stir up a little hate among Americans about same-sex marriage. I really believed for a minute that it would only be the real simpletons who'd be pulled into this ridiculous debate. I mean the real simpletons. The ones who still haven't been willing to scratch those Bush Cheney stickers off the backs of their Humvees. Most of you listening to this show immediately understood what a pathetic, sickly attempt it was by an almost freakishly unpopular president and Republican Congress to hold on to their assortment of oddballs that still make up their base, those oddballs that make up the Republican coalition. One part of that collection of oddballs is, of course, the Pat Robertson crowd. That oddball fringe deserves a leader like Pat Robertson. There's so much to say about Robertson, whose latest revelation was that as a 67-year-old man, 
He was able to leg press more than 2,000 pounds, suggesting, I guess, to his flock that God gave him superhuman strength. But that's no surprise because this, of course, is the same Pat Robertson who told his kooky fringe followers that we should murder Hugo Chavez and that hurricanes were sent to America to kill sinners. We know for sure that this is part of the oddball team that Bush is trying to hold together for the midterm elections. It's part of that rank-and-file Republican coalition that's loyal to Bush as the other Moonies are loyal to Sun Young Moon. They love a good hate speech every now and then. This is a group that loves to sneer. They love to point fingers because somewhere in their depleted intellect, they conclude that God wants them to live their lives like that. There's very little chance that the Republicans, even with a leader like George Bush, will ever lose that part of their coalition in November. Then there's another smaller part of a coalition that the Republicans are counting on to fall under the spell of Bush's latest little hate campaign against same-sex marriage. The pollster refers to these guys you've all heard as NASCAR dads. It's a group almost exclusively of white males who've had their jobs outsourced to places like Taiwan and New Delhi. They've had their pension programs. Programs pilfered by Republican politicians and Republican judges. They've all but lost their right to be protected by workers' compensation when they lose a leg or they lose an arm on the job. They can barely afford to pay for health care for their family because the Republicans have always fought national health care with a vengeance. Their kids can't afford to go to college anymore because the Republicans have cut government funding for college loan programs. Their long-term joblessness has almost doubled under the Republicans. They've worked without any meaningful wage increases since the Republicans came to Washington. But they've watched the guy they call the man, that nameless, faceless guy who owns their lives, they've watched the man increase his compensation by 400 to 1 in a ratio against their wages. It's this group of NASCAR dads who are being sent in as the front line in Iraq. It's their brothers. It's their sons. It's their daughters who've been the victims of fraud by Bush and Cheney, a fraud that's killed and crippled about 36,000 of them. But even with all that, it's the NASCAR dad block that Bush can count on to react blindly to hot-button issues like same-sex marriage and completely stop thinking about social and money matters that make their lives miserable. They seem incapable of connecting the dots. It's a simpleton view of the world. But that's part of the predictable coalition that made up about one and one-half percent of the 2004 vote, and you can bet they actually believed that they're Republican. I say they actually believe they were Republican because they aren't really invited into real Republican leadership because the truth is they don't have enough money to be real Republicans. They're really only expendable foot soldiers for the real have-mores who make up the third leg of that oddball coalition Bush and Karl Rove are constantly trying to hold together. The third oddball group is the inheritance baby crowd. Since the day they put Bush into office, they've turned their billionaire status into multi-billionaire status by controlling more money than most third world countries. And you know what's so funny about it? They could really care less about what the sexual orientation is for America. They don't really care about who's marrying who. They don't really care whether we marry each other or whether we marry a damn four-legged farm animal. Bush is working for those inheritance babies, and by golly, 
rally, whatever it takes for the Republicans to stay in office, to protect their tax breaks, to lower inheritance taxes, to lower capital gains taxes. Whatever it takes is fine with that oddball bunch of inheritance babies. If hate and division sells to Group 1 and Group 2 of Bush's oddball coalition, whether it's crazy-eyed religious fanatics or knee-jerk simpletons, you can count on one thing. They're not actually going to be socializing with those crowds, but you can count on the fact that they are somewhere hiding behind the curtains on Bush's stage. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. We're talking now about a problem that won't go away. Electronic voting systems. More news coming out this week from New York University's Brennan Center for Justice. They have a task force on voting system security, and they checked out the most widely used e-voting systems across the country and found out that they all have flaws that those flaws can be addressed pretty easily. In fact, could be addressed by 2006 fall elections, but they continue. Few states and counties have actually implemented recommended security measures. That's the news this week, but it is not news to Bev Harris. She's the author of Black Box Voting Ballot Tampering in the 21st Century, and she's behind blackboxvoting.org. Bev Harris, welcome. Well, it's nice to be here. Well, of course, you were talking about flawed e-voting systems back when uh, nobody else was really looking in that direction. With this new story, what's the new information? I think what's new, unfortunately, is that even though everyone now knows, including all the secretaries of state, the Election Assistance Commission, they all know that the security problems are real, that they are serious, and they have not taken actions to correct it. And it looks very much like we are all going to go into November where control of Congress on a federal level is at stake on machines that are defective. And by defective, I mean they were sold representing that they meet FEC guidelines. They do not. They were sold representing that they're secure. They are not. And the security defects have not been addressed in any meaningful way, even though they could have, most of them could have been. Uh, Because of that, Black Box Voting released a devastating report back in May And we redacted the actual recipe for how to hack the election because we knew it would take a few weeks, you know, of emergency measures to get in there and fix it. We are going to release the unredacted recipes for hacking the election. The reason being that this seems to be the only way that they will actually take action to prevent it. So in in other words, you're going to set the hackers loose on the system so that those who haven't taken it seriously will now do so. I, I don't know what 
else to do? We're so frustrated at this point because they know it's true. The manufacturer has admitted it's true. And all they do is minimize and say they think it's unlikely someone will try. Well, the future of the free world is at stake. Let me, Beth, is, let me interrupt you for just a minute. Can you summarize for the non-technical minded what the biggest flaws are in this system so we know what we're talking about? Sure. Well, the most widely used system is Diebold Election Systems. Now, they have a problem in every single component of their system, but when we looked at their TSX touchscreen system and we had a chance to get up close and personal with that in Utah, thanks to a very courageous elections official by the name of Bruce Funk in Emory County, well, when we saw these, we saw that they had built in uh, essentially tunnels to let someone get in and change the program very quickly and easily. And it was very disturbing because they had tunnels in three different levels. In other words, in the foundation itself, in the operating system that underlies the voting system, and also in the voting system itself. And such that if you found one and you walled it off, you could reopen it from one of the other ones. These were not accidents. They were not glitches. They were not oversights. They were built in. This was very concerning. Not only that, but they had multiple ways to get at the tunnels. For example, you could get at them through a memory card. You could also get at them through a cable, which you could hook up to the machine. And you could also get at them through networking or wireless. So and it anybody who has really a problem when you see they've got all these different mechanisms to get in, and they had represented that this system was secure. Clearly, it was not. They've admitted it, and they haven't corrected it. Well, as opposed to what the Brennan Center for Justice is recommending, which is the small fixes that could make things safe for 2006, and as opposed to some present legislation that is being reviewed in Washington D.C., you're a proponent of essentially going back to paper, pen, and counting by hand. Well. No, we actually have another solution on our website as well, because a lot of the voting machines do actually make a digital photograph of, the, of a paper ballot as they scan it. And we would, be, uh, we would feel it's a, a considerable improvement if we would simply use those existing voting machines. Diebold actually makes one, although they don't tell anyone about it and don't really sell it. But what it, what it does is you, you run the paper ballot through, it scans the ballot, it takes a digital photograph of each ballot, and then those are public records. And we could get, as, the, as citizens, copies of those on CD or DVD, and we could look at all the ballots that were scanned. That would be an improvement, but we actually are not a proponent of something that is completely dependent on scientists and trust in some auditing organization. The citizens must be able to audit their own elections. We used to be able to do that with hand counts and paper ballots because you could go into the precinct and watch them be counted. What's changed with electronic voting is they've said you have to put trust in two entities. You have to trust the programmers and you have to trust the election officials. That was not the case before. And at least we shouldn't make the system worse with computers. One of the things that's a deal breaker for black box voting is that the citizens must retain control. They must retain ultimate control and not turn the control over and say we're just going to trust an elections official. Because, of course, there's a history of elections officials who have been compromised or corrupted. In fact, just in the 2004 election, in one of the more humorous examples, in West Virginia, an election supervisor sold her own vote and was caught. You know, so you can't just say we have to trust someone we used to be able to oversee it. We insist on being able to oversee it. And whether that happens with hand counting 
or whether it happens with looking at the digital photographs and having some other observation ability. We're talking transparent. You want transparent. But we're not going to turn it over to some group that goes out for bid for the chance to look at 2%. You know, that is a right that we have always had. We're looking at this as a basic civil right. I want to thank you for all of this, and I'm going to recommend folks go to your website, blackboxvoting.org, to check this out. And we will check back with you about these hackers and see how that, uh, that release of hacking information works out. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Ben Harris of blackboxvoting.org. ago, a special election was held in California to replace the disgraced crook GOP Congressman Randy Duke Cunningham. Democrat Francine Busby was supposedly defeated by Republican Brian Bilbray, but the Debo Republican dirty tricks are starting to surface, as if we didn't know they were out there. With us now is Brad Friedman, author of The Brad Blog. He broke the story. So, Brad, I, I'm following this new development. What, what is this new concept of called sleepovers? What is it? Oh, it's actually an old concept, but it's a brand new problem, and it's a huge problem. It used to be no problem to send home voting machines with poll workers. This was done regularly, and there there wasn't anything you could really uh, do with these machines. Now, however, we've got these new machines, these Diebold machines specifically down there in San Diego that were that was used in this special runoff election down there, regarded as a bellwether for what would happen November. Uh, this was the first federal election since these emergency security mitigation requirements were put in place at both the state and federal level. Well, tell us about that, because you helped. Yeah. You, you were part of all that. Why, why was it an emergency? What type of safeguards were supposed to be put in place? How did the California Secretary, Secretary of State, uh, Bruce McPherson, go at this problem? We found out within really just the past three or four months that these Diebold voting machines, both the optical scan uh, versions that use paper and the touchscreen systems, are incredibly vulnerable to hacking. This was really first revealed back in December of 2005, right at the end of the year, when there was a mock election down in Leon County, Florida. Eon Sanchez. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Eon Sanchez. Simple yes or no question, can Diebold machines be hacked via their memory cards? Six people voted on paper they said no. Two people said yes. They ran the ballots through the tabulator, and it came back completely reversed. One no, seven yes. That was on paper. Sanchez has been complaining about this for for years now. Exactly. And, and he, you know, he's been trying to get folks' attention. Well, he finally got some folks' attention. And when that uh, election was flipped without a trace left behind, except for the paper ballots, everybody also then came to realize that th- because this was Florida down there, there's a new law. You can't count those paper ballots once they've been counted by a machine. 
So that problem would have never been discovered mm. down in Florida. Yeah. Meanwhile, it set the country, Bruce McPherson, the Secretary of State out here in California, as well as the federal authorities, and I put that in quotes, uh, the, yeah, the folks right. to do the certification, it set them off to put these emergency uh, mitigation requirements in place. Then you move the clock forward to June 6th, they have the first federal election on these machines down in San Diego where they used all Diebold machines, right, optical right. scan and touchscreen. And remarkably, instead of following those requirements, which say that uh, programmed uh, memory cards and voting machines must be stored securely, they send these machines home with poll workers for days and weeks at a time prior to the election to be stored in their cars, their garages, completely unsecurely. And that's called the sleepover. That is the sleepover. Okay, now tell, tell yeah. us this. The, the poll worker has the machine in their home. Uh, you, you say that used to go on, but even with the paper, the old ballots, it, it wasn't really a problem. Right. Here, though, the, you've got a machine that we know, I mean, everybody, every serious investigator who's looked at this says that you, you can easily tamper with memory cards. Tell us how you tamper with memory cards. Every computer scientist and security expert out there who's now uh, looked at the problem since these things have been revealed uh, have seen that it, within two minutes' time, no password necessary. You can completely change the election software, the operating system, and even the computer firmware on these voting machines. So you know, that's one of the reasons these extraordinary requirements went into place. And we have further learned that if you can contaminate one machine, that can then contaminate all of the other machines in the election. In Ohio, Upwards of about 80,000 votes that were supposed to go to Kerry were counted for Bush instead on these machines. That, that's kind of an example of what we're talking about. Well, it, yeah, it can be an example, but it has now gotten much worse in that we've identified some of these specific vulnerability points. These, uh, the information has been released on the web just within the past few months. So both the federal body and the state out here in California issued these brand new rules, laws, and provisions with, for required use on these machines. And then the first chance they had, they essentially completely ignored them. Now, when those requirements are not met, it says very specifically that uh, federal certification is removed, as is state certification removed. That special election, regarded as a bellwether across the country, was run on 100 percent decertified voting machines. Okay, well, so let's talk about that. You had, yeah. uh, uh, so, so Bill Bray was announced as a winner. How could you announce Bill Bray as the winner if you know you had 70,000 uh, ballots that weren't even counted? How, how did that happen? I mean, well, you my, know, my memory, they're swearing this guy in before anything was really verified. Well, not, not yeah. He was actually sworn into Congress about five days after the election, the election itself was not even certified by the county until just the end of last week. Uh, Running oh, against Democrat Francine Busby, who, by the way, why in the world she conceded this? What was it, a vote? 500 vote difference. Yeah, I think she was racing John Kerry for the uh, speed concession. Yeah, what record. was that about? What, have you, do, you, do you have any insight about why in the hell she would have said, yeah, I'm going to do that when you didn't even have all the votes counted? I well, mean, I, I, I believe I do, yeah. And <clears throat> the answer is, is somewhat troubling. Uh, I've had uh, several folks have confirmed to me that they've been told 
that the uh, DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, had essentially instructed her prior to the election to stay away from the voting machine issues. Why? And so you have the Democratic leadership say, hey, let's just not say, let's just tiptoe past the graveyard? Oh, yeah. And they're, and they're still doing it. This is what's remarkable. I mean, she came out with a statement, Busby did, saying that we had hundreds of people from both parties watching the tabulation on election night, and they didn't see anything wrong. Let me just tell you something. In Ohio, Ohio, where you had one county, there was a total of about 4,000 votes for Bush, 260 votes for Kerry. In that precinct, interestingly enough, though, there were only 800 registered voters. That, that's right. 800 were, registered voters, but right. Bush got 4,000 4, votes. Now, yeah, now, let me just I, tell you something. <laughs> you know what's bothersome to me? Hmm. A lot of times when people talk about these issues, they don't use real facts. The reason people like your blog so much, the reason you have such credibility, is you actually go get the information directly from the source, don't you? Well, that's right. If I can't, uh, I like to put out the information so that it can be independently verified. No one should trust me, much as no one should trust election officials. We should be able to verify things. The fact of the matter is, there is no way in the world, Pat, that the Busby Bill Bray election down there can be verified at this time as authentic. If you ask the registrar, Michael Haas down there, who, by the way, in an interview, told me himself that storage in cars could not be considered secure. Uh, there is no way that he can prove to you that Brian Bilbray won that election. Now, the uh, the onus ought to be on election right, officials right. to that, prove it that should they be a legitimate election. Exactly. It should be a shift of, of burden, shouldn't and, it? Exactly. They, we don't have to prove fraud. They have to prove that it was accurate. Now, you, you, the, the, the biggest problem, and this underscores the DCCC that I mentioned, the DNC, frankly, is that with Busby's statement, when she says there's hundreds of people looking, they didn't see anything wrong, you could have a million people looking. Oh, of course. And you wouldn't see anything wrong. Well, are they just That's out of the, touch? Uh, are yeah. they just out of touch, Brad? Yes, and the fact that the Democrats don't see this, and they aren't jumping in here now you know, to force them what to approve uh, this Busby-Bill Bray election... <laughs> means that they are out to lunch. If they're going to wait until November when 435 of these things, Mike, happen on the same day, mm. are you mm. kidding me? Yeah, you, you can't keep up. I'm trying to put the message out. Listen right now. Watch what's going on in the California 50th Busby Bilbray race because it's not about California or Busby Bilbray. This is about the way these elections will be run in November and the time to deal with it and send the message that these sleepovers don't work anymore mm -hmm. is right now not in november we've got to get that message to the to the dnc and the dccc brad let's follow up on this story a little bit more in, in, in about a month or so okay anytime thanks a lot brad i appreciate it Here we go, hardcore. Who doesn't love talking about Diebold? I know Brad Blog's not on, uh, so it's a little weird that we'd be talking about Diebold without uh, Brad from Brad Blog. But uh, actually, we have Stephen Levy. 
who is a senior editor at Newsweek, uh, to Stephen talk Levy. about. Stephen Levy. Levy. Okay. It's Stefan Levy, actually. Is that right? <laughs> I did not know no, that. No, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the Young Turks. Hi. Thank you. Well, Stephen, first of all, i got to tell you something. You made uh, some bloggers happy because they were dying for somebody in the mainstream media to write an article about Diebold, and, uh, and you guys finally did, and so... At least they're happy on that count. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, uh, I, uh, I'm a technology writer at Newsweek, and I actually have been following the voting thing pretty closely uh, over the years. At one point, actually, Diebold's CEO, uh, he was the CEO at the time, um, uh, came to Newsweek uh, to meet with the editorial board um, after I, I guess they weren't too happy with some of the, the columns I was writing there uh, about their affiliations there. But um, we have been following the, this article, probably not as much as the bloggers would like, but we've been following the issue. Well, Stephen, uh, let's start with the first, the, the broadest uh, question possible. How worried should Americans be about the sort of, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the authenticity of the vote? In well, general, not in any specific election, but in general, right. with voting machines like Google. Well, you know, the difficulty is that uh, it's not a question of the percentage of you know whether your vote's been compromised or not. To me, the issue is there's no guarantee uh, with these machines without a trail that your machine that your vote has not been compromised. That's the, the, the question. If, if we can't have an election where people are assured that the vote that they cast at the ballot is the vote that counts in the total, then we're in trouble. And I think that's what really gets people upset here. Um, realistically, in my assessment, this huge vulnerability that uh, you know this Finnish security expert Hursty found in the Diebold machines probably isn't being exploited. That's that's just my, my, my guess. But there is a chance that it is. And yeah, probably it, is very third world. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, if you think about it, it you um, you don't need uh, you know the, the, much time with the machine to make the change. Change, but you probably have to get have a pretty good understanding of what's going on in the machine to write the software that's going to mess up an election. Uh, probably there's a better chance if someone wanted to cause some problems of putting software in that could make the machines go dead on election day uh, than there would be to surreptitiously funnel votes. But you know, again, you don't know. You know, if there's even a small percentage chance that there's something wrong, that's no good. You need to have some backup system that's going to ensure people that and make them feel okay that their vote, if they push this button on the screen, is going to be the one that, that counts. I have a prediction. Uh, I have, my prediction is that this is not going to get straightened out until some Democrat, uh, and not by the party, but some guy decides, some software geek decides, yeah, I'm going to fix an election for the Democrats. The very next day, <laughs> right. it'll get solved instantly. Okay, uh, but until the Democrats use it to their advantage, it won't get well, solved. I, at all. I mean, look. Let me ask you a serious question along those lines, Stephen. Seriously, I mean, why are the Republicans not going to fix this? Because right now they've not put it as a priority at all. See, doesn't that sound fishy? And I know I'm not saying anybody's done anything, and, I, and I've never seen any evidence of that. Uh, I know hate mail at theyoungturks.com to all the people listening. Uh, now, but the fact is. It easily can happen. So theoretically, it could happen to a Democrat, you know, in favor of a Democrat, just as much as against a Democrat. Shouldn't the Republicans be concerned about that? And if they're not, why aren't they? 
Well, that, that, that's a great question. I mean, if you traditionally, you know, look back at, at, at some of the, the, the great uh, voting flaps in, in, in the past, it's not that the Democrats uh, have, have clean hands in this. Uh, you know, people talk about uh, the Kennedy election, right? And... Um, and in a lot of cities where a lot of funny of stuff Ch- goes... The city goes, of Chicago, the city of New Orleans. For right, right. And in, in cities, Democrats generally are in charge of, of, of big cities. They're, their political machines are in charge here. So you would think Republicans are more upset. To me, the way I see it is this. By definition, everyone who's been... You know, elected to the legislature, to Congress, the state legislatures, has had the benefit of the system that's in place. The system works for them. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's the, you know, as as I was asking the question, my guess is, as with everything, it, it's all structured around incumbency. As long as it works for the incumbents, not a damn thing is going to get changed. It's just, it's a little shocking to not just read it, you know, all over the internet, but to read it yeah. from to trusted journalists to say that our voting system is not at all secure. Let, let me let me read the essentially the first second paragraph in or maybe it's even the back half of the first paragraph in Stephen's piece because to again this to me was limited to you know uh, the, to, to the to the blogosphere essentially but let me just read this it's a couple of sentences it'll only take a second this is what Stephen uh, Levy wrote uh, in uh, uh, in Newsweek how bad that's, that's, that's my correct pronunciation too very good oh thank you very much yeah uh, how bad are the problems uh, experts are calling them the most serious voting machine flaws ever documented basically the trouble stems from the ease with which the machine software can be altered it requires only a few minutes of pre-election access to a debol is it debol by the way debol yeah okay to a Diebold machine to open the machine and insert a PC card that I always thought that it was Diebold, maybe. Uh, to a Diebold machine to open the uh, machine, insert a PC card that, if it contained malicious code, could reprogram the machine to give control to the violator. The machine could go dead on election or throw votes to the wrong candidate. Worse, it's even possible for such ballot tampering software to trick authorized technicians into thinking that everything is working fine, an illusion you couldn't pull off with pre-electronic systems. Well, that, I mean... Throw votes to the wrong candidate, and you have, can't trace have it. it. Not count, and then trick the technician into thinking everything's fine. That, that strikes me as as bad as it can get. I realize we're not saying that's happened, but that is as bad as it could be. That's right, and I think in, in this case, what really made the computer security experts go nuts was that it's relatively easy to do this if you know that the software. It's not like you put the card in and it makes you, you know, verify who you are very closely and have passwords and things like that. Um, and when I talked to the, the, the representative of Diebold, basically he's saying, well, this is the feature we use to make it easy to up for authorized people to upgrade the machines. Well, you know, any computer security expert knows, and I've written about computer security and cryptography a lot, and this is really lesson one. You have to assume that you're going to be attacked, and you're really going to have to assume that you're going to be attacked if the prize is huge. What's a bigger prize than control the political system? Yeah, absolutely. And and by the way, also now you know. Then let's turn uh, to the bloggers who've been uh, you know f- apparently write about this all along that the system is clearly broke, uh, broken. Uh, you know, 
they say now we say to them, well, show us proof that somebody's actually fixed it. But you're telling us, Stephen, here that they could design a program so that you absolutely couldn't have proof that you right. you couldn't show that it's been altered. So it seems like it's an unfair burden to put on people. I've got a, I'm, I agree that we have a broken system, and I agree that you couldn't possibly prove it. Now prove it. Right. Well, to me, the proof that the system is in trouble is not. You don't need to, you know, to, to say, "Oh, this election has been tossed." You know, this election was compromised. The fact that people can't have confidence in it shows shows me that something has to be done. That it's that, already broken to me. Right. Bro- broken to me is the idea that there's no way to be assured to tell people, "Of course, your vote counts," and this is X, Y, and Z, Y. And that's why this idea of some sort of uh, paper balloting uh, uh, that counts, and a certain amount of uh, percentage of you know polling places get audited to make sure that there isn't stuff going on. That's really important. And there's uh, obviously uh, you know uh, Representative Holt of New Jersey has a bill that wasn't passed in the last Congress. The guy in charge of the committee was a fellow named Nye who's in trouble now. Um, <laughs> and, and but it, but 26 states have gone ahead and they've been convinced by this. So slowly, I think. There, there is an effect of outraged citizens saying, wait a minute, we can't have this. Uh, Stephen, would the paper trail solve the problem? The paper trail uh, would go a long way to, to, to solving the problem. It depends on how it's used again. But I guess part of what you have to do in the paper trail is that you just can't say, oh, we have a paper trail, forget about it. Then you have to actively audit that's what, so that's what you mean by auditing, auditing through a paper trail, because auditing by looking at the machines, as we know, as you just wrote, the technicians could be tricked into believing things were Right. Good. What you have to do is to say, even if there's nothing wrong, it looks like everything's fine, a certain percentage of polling places, we're just going to go in at random and just make a check. Let's just see if it's working. And that way uh, it would be very difficult uh, for someone trying to affect an election to go and, and, and try something because, you know, they would have to be worried that they would be caught doing it. Um, to, uh, uh, can you say, after having done this research and talked to uh, uh, both, uh, who was the name of the group that did the uh, oversight, the uh, the Hearst- well, the Black Box, bowling, Black Box Voting was the organization which had the, the study. Uh, I didn't talk to the, the Finnish expert who did that, but I talked to several security okay. experts, all, so, all of whom were pretty alarmed so at, at this vulnerability. You've talked to security experts and you've talked to Diebold. Uh, yeah. We have uh, made fun, essentially, at, at various times of uh, all those uh, people in the blogosphere on the, on the left who say, because there is no, they don't have evidence, of course, but who say that they think there was stuff wrong in Ohio uh, in 2004. Uh, can you assure people that there was nothing wrong in Ohio? Of course I can't. Yeah. I mean, how, how, how can you assure people? You could basically say, well, look, the exit polls, uh, you know, weren't at that, that, at, at variance with what happened in there. But that, that, to me, that's the crux of the problem. The problem is, if you don't have some way to back up the way the machines worked, you can't be 100% sure. You could say, well, it doesn't really look like that. I really don't see the proof that, that something's happened. But you can't say with certainty that nothing went wrong. That, to me, that's the problem. Right. We don't know for sure. We're talking to Stephen Levy of Newsweek. He's a senior editor there. Stephen, based on what you just said, uh, I think anybody who votes against a uh, uh, paperless, uh, I'm sorry, votes for a paper trail, votes against a paper trail, <laughs> god damn, sorry about that, <laughs> votes against a paper trail, uh, then basically is voting for unfair and unverifiable elections. Well, it, it is a, 
a little more complicated. And one interesting thing that's happened in the, 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 this voting issue is that uh, the, the people, mainly the Republicans, I think, but you know, uh, let, let's say the people who don't want change have glommed on to the uh, the handicap community as a way to stop you know uh, this. this paper balloting from going on here. Uh, now, there, there, there was a bill passed a few years ago to have a bill, which, you know, was, was to help, uh, you know, uh, the states and communities buy new voting machines. And the, you know, the blind people and, you know, uh, uh, and others who, who might be challenged to vote in a traditional way really got excited about this because this would uh, enable them to have technology which let them cast their votes. And there's sort of been a fear campaign saying, oh, well, these these forms of a receipt is go- are going to deny you access to this. So the war has been muddied a little by this issue. Well, that's- Stephen, i got to say, I, you know, the more you talk, the more I think they're cheating. And I'll yeah, tell you why. Be, that's because, the worst argument in the history of the world. Because all of a sudden the Republicans care about handicapped people? <laughs> I mean, that's such a disingenuous <laughs> argument that it makes me think that they're covering for something. I mean, if they had a real argument, maybe we're having a conversation. But if they come up with such an obviously fake argument, it makes me think, what are you hiding? Well, let me ask you this, then, in regard to that, because Jenk, I thought, said something interesting uh, at the end of your last answer, Stephen, when Jenk said, you know, how could anybody who votes against a paper trail, you're covering something up, or you're not interested in in fair and above-board and verifiable elections. You said it was a little more complicated than that. Well, how is it? There's there's, there's this issue of of, of money involved. Uh, It it costs more. Um, For me, you know, I'm I'm a a columnist, like I expressed my opinion here, right. it seems to me that a good investment of money is to make sure our election systems work well. Yeah, that seems fair. That seems like probably pretty good idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, of all the money we're spending, I mean, yeah. thrown away by the billions, I think that's a fair investment. Just ask William Jefferson and Randy Duke Cunningham for the money. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Stephen, let me ask you the last question here. We're talking to Stephen uh, Levy of Newsweek. Uh, what percentage of the states now have a fair system where, where it's funny enough, whether it's the old system that used to work fine with the levers and everything to some degree uh, or it's a system with a paper trail and what percentage don't have a paper trail purely Diebold or ESNS some sort of computer voting system that is not verifiable right well right now 26 states either by uh, regulations or by uh, you know the legislatures voted it have, have instituted now uh, some sort of paper trail um, and then you know there's the, in some places some districts have it, some don't have it. It's sort of a mishmash. Yeah, this is, look, for federal elections, we're electing members of Congress. They may come from 435 different districts, right. but we're sending them and to federal elections. the butterfly ballots, they weren't electronic. So one thing right, which, right. which people like, like about the touchscreen systems is that they, they are in general easier to use. They're very clear to the user. Uh, so that, that that's a good thing. But, you know, no, a lot I, of people feel you just need that backup. Uh, and some some people, like Avi Rubin, who's a, a, an expert at Johns Hopkins, he, what he likes, and it seems to make sense, is what's called a hybrid system. It's the front end is you know, the, com- the computer, and then that gives you like a, uh, something, a, a piece of paper, which you could then put in a scanner, uh, where you could look, by, look at you know, uh, visually, uh, which has the, you know, the paper ballot, which, which is generated by that front end touchscreen, which is very clear to the voter. Well, uh, Stephen, I was just going to say, I, I just I don't understand how it's fa- it makes sense in this country in any way to have people voting in federal elections with totally different systems, even inside a state, to say 
nothing of state to state. We ought to have one. Well, and then, then again, again, the other huge problem is that these companies which make it are independent companies. The system itself is politicized. They're allowed, they make contributions uh, to, you know, uh, political entities, well, um, um, and they don't let other people examine their codes. Well, let's uh, I think a big thing would be to, to take the whole election system out of, of the private sector yeah. uh, and make it a part of the public sector. Yeah, of, of course! Of course! Of course! Of course! course. It's the most I mean, we just caught Ken Blackwell investing in Diebold in Ohio, and he said, oh, that was an honest mistake. Uh, and I'm supposed to take your word for that? The guy who ran the Ohio election? Secretary of State in Ohio in 2004. And wound up as an investor in Diebold, and he calls that a mistake, an oversight? Come on. Right, right. And there's other politicians who've been pretty pretty closely involved with some of the voting companies. Yeah, yeah, like Hagel. I mean, hey, Chuck Hagel, is, yeah. exactly. It's unbelievable. All right, Stephen Levy, great piece in Newsweek. Really appreciate you coming on and talking okay, to us. Thanks, 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 Thanks for listening, everybody. So I, I was just reminded today, I had a, a listener wrote in who, um, he, he just wanted to give a little bit of a donation to my tip jar on the website. And so he was just writing in to say that the, the link was broken. So I, to the best of my knowledge, I've got that all fixed. But he reminded me that although I did mention before that I have a, a little tip jar, a little donation, uh, link on the website that, uh, I completely forgot to mention that I actually have a fundraising goal. And, you know, it, it's sad that that's kind of the way the world works. But, you know, when you're the little guy and you got a little show and, you know, whatever you're doing, if you want to get noticed, it just it takes money to, uh, to kind of to do the things that you need to do to get recognized and get bigger and that sort of thing. I mean, have you guys ever heard the story of how the 700 Club got started and how it got its name? I mean, they they had a little show, um, or it, at least their congregation or whatever, and they were trying to really launch this show. And so they asked for 700 people to donate $1,000. Uh, either that or 1,000 people to donate $700. I, I don't remember which. And so they raised $700,000, and that was the money they needed to launch their show, which has become ridiculously large and gets played three times a day on the ABC Family Channel, where Pat Robertson can go and condemn Venezuelan presidents to be assassinated, um, which is exactly what I would like to do one day. And so I, I, didn't, I didn't, you know, shoot the moon or anything. I started low, so my, my fundraising goal I, I set at a modest $100,000. So if you'd like to contribute, you can do that. Go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com. The links are right there. Uh, PayPal and uh, the, the new Amazon Honor System. You can do that. So however you guys want to divvy it up, if, you, you know, if, if uh, 100 of you want to donate $1,000, that's fine. If a thousand of you want to donate a hundred dollars, that's fine. Uh, anywhere in between, just as long as it averages out, you know. So it's it's just something to think about the next time you're, uh, you know, fondling your huge wad of expendable cash on hand. Anyways, you can do that all through bestoftheleftpodcast.com, and you can contact me directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Have a good one, everybody. 
Hi, this is Twilight from the Twilight and Deep Show, and I'm a proud member of the Progressive Podcast Network. Visit and learn more at newmediarevolution.org.